agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, the place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. Today, as the last pre-election episode of our Election 2020 series, we'll be discussing how accurate election polls are, what happened in 2016, if we can trust the polls this year, what those polls are telling us, and our predictions for the presidential race, as well as control of the Senate and House of Representatives. What have major polling organizations done to try to adjust their methods based on what they've learned from 2016? Who wants to start us off? Faith. Yeah, kind of what happened in 2016 is not so much that the polls were completely wrong, but a lot of the polls actually fell within their appropriate margin of error. But the fact that Trump was actually able to pick up a couple swing states that these polls didn't quite have in his favor is what kind of really threw it off. And so like a lot of things that polling organizations have attempted to do this time around is consider different factors that have been going on, especially considering looking at education um, and seeing kind of where respondents' education is. They've also done things in terms of kind of shifting polling, um, going away from traditional polling types like random digit dialing to using texting, which I know some polls have said that has allowed them to get younger um, respondents and even men um, to increase. Uh, So I think anything else that they've been doing has really kind of been beneficial. Also kind of taking away from the idea that some pollsters have said that like as Trump refers to them as the silent majority didn't throw them off, but a couple of pollsters saying that it did. And this time around, they are taking more into account to make sure that those respondents actually give a direct indication. Am I voting for Trump or am I voting for Biden? Where they didn't quite do that as much in 2016. Doc. I think the electoral, electoral college threw a curve at them. I mean, they, they have a, tough time taking that into consideration. I mean, you can poll people and get a set of numbers and check them against one another. But when you when you throw the electoral college in there, I just think that just takes your numbers, you might as well put them in a basket and shake it up and down. Uh, the other thing is, I don't know who they who they poll, and I think I put it in my paper. I'm an old white guy. I never get a phone call. I never get something in the mail other than fill this out, tell us how good we're doing, and send us money, so, which is not really a poll. Uh, so, you know, they don't get my input. I don't know whose input they get. Alan. Yeah, sort of going off of what Doc and Faith were saying, one of the things that pollsters are actually trying to change is the they are now creating like set sections for um, educational levels because they were over poll. They felt they were over polling um, college educated voters who usually vote more to the left than perhaps um, high school educated voters. So that was another issue that pollsters had to deal with is the polling population they keep polling from are people who consistently answer. Faith. 
Yeah, going off of um, kind of what Alan was um, saying is also too, they're looking at specifically where respondents live and kind of understanding the idea that if respondents live more in a city, it will typically be more democratic. So kind of expanding that to look at more rural areas to also kind of diversify the um, um, kind of pool, uh, pool of respondents that they're looking at. Olivia. Um, just responding to a couple of points that were made. So uh, like Doc was saying about um, the Electoral College kind of throwing off the 2016 election. Um, first of all, the reason that pollsters say is that the uh, the predictions weren't actually that off is like Faith said, it, they were in the margin of error, the, the standard margin of error. But um, the states that kind of were the turning point for the election, uh, Trump only won by tens of thousands of votes. So, um, you know, having an unexpected elect or an unexpected state um, vote in favor of Trump can, you know, totally alter the result of the election and, and still make it so that the polls were not that wrong because Clinton did win the uh, popular vote, um, which they predicted. But also what Doc was saying about who's being polled, this wasn't in any of the articles or anything. But from my own personal experience, I want to add, um, I take polls all the time, but it's because this is what I'm interested in. And so I'm subscribed to Facebook groups who are sending me polls. And I'm subscribed to all of the email chains for, you know, the DNC and for Biden and for Trump. And um, so I'm getting polled all the time. So I think um, definitely it's a lot more easy to access younger people who are really politically involved um, and who also maybe are politically involved because of their what they're studying in college or their education level or whatever. Um, and I do think that that's an area that um, pollsters are trying to compensate for now because it's harder to reach um, older generations who maybe aren't so into social media and technology. So we're recording this episode one week before Election Day, and there is a clear favorite in the polls right now. Joe Biden is expected to win in just about every poll-based election model there is. And now the most notable differences between 2020 and 2016 are Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. These are all states that Donald Trump won in 2016, but that Joe Biden is ahead in this year. In Pennsylvania, if you believe the polls, Biden's lead is just over five points. It's 5.4 in Wisconsin. And in Michigan, he's got a lead of just over eight points. And these are all polling averages, so they take multiple state polls. But at the same time, or around this same time in 2016, Hillary Clinton was favored by around three points in Pennsylvania, 6.5 points in Wisconsin, and around five in Michigan. So the question that naturally arises is, why should anyone trust the 2020 polls when they seem to look, in many cases, an awful lot like what we saw in 2016? So how do you respond to that? Faith? I think partially what should possibly give voters more confidence that the polls are correct is that looking at the 2018 polls midterms were actually some of the highest levels on record of being able to predict accurate outcomes. So kind of showing for the respondents that pollsters have made adjustments towards that, possibly giving them more direction. I think if it, again, they're wrong, that kind of creates maybe a problem and a big crisis that some people might say. But I think looking at 2018 kind of back should give people a little bit more confidence that the polls are actually going to have accurate predictions this time. Okay. Doc. Uh, just thinking about what Faith said. Um, the 2018 polls didn't have to deal with the Electoral College. I mean, it was just straight out uh, count, the, uh, count the votes. 
Um, and I'm, I just, I, I think it just keeps getting tighter and tighter. Uh, the, the idea, the, 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 the numbers, I mean, especially in Pennsylvania, especially after Biden, uh, made his gaffe during the, uh, debate on oil. Uh, and call it a gaffe or maybe not, but when he said he was going to eliminate fracking and and oil, and even though he backed off and said he's going to transition, but um, things like that, I I think are really going to affect uh, the numbers in the energy producing states. Okay. So this is going to this is going to be interesting. Okay, Olivia. Uh, one reason that I personally have a little bit more faith in the polls this year than in 2016, how they proved to be um, wrong, but is because um, the undecided voters are were there were so many more of them in 2016. Um, about 14 percent of respondents to polls uh, were undecided on who they were going to vote for. And then almost all of the undecided voters ended up. Uh, voting for Trump and pollsters believe that it's because he was such a um, a divisive candidate um, that they were kind of, you know, struggling with themselves. They had their minds made up that they were going to vote for Trump, but um, didn't really want to commit to it and, and agree to it in a poll. So they said they were undivided and then they ended or undecided and then they ended up voting for Trump. Um, this year, only about 3% of voters are claiming that they're undecided. So, um, and questions like Faith said um, are being used such as not just who you're going to vote for, but who do you believe is the most truthful candidate and the most trustworthy? Who do you think is the most energetic candidate? Um, And so even if someone doesn't want, if they're, you know, telling themselves they're undecided and they don't want to commit to who they're going to vote for yet, um, a lot of times who they pick as the answer to those questions are very telling and who they're going to vote for. So um, just methods in uh, and trying to get to the undecided voter and also the lack of undecided voters, um, the change in that between this year and 2016, I think, is making these polls more accurate. So let's turn to our predictions. Uh, starting, I think we'll start with the least controversial. It seems like just about everyone thinks that there won't be much of a change in the House of Representatives, and it's pretty widely expected that Democrats will retain control with maybe a few seats shifting to one party or the other, but nothing significant. So why is it? Why do you think it seems so unlikely? Almost nobody thinks that the Republicans will regain the majority in the House, a majority that they you know, held not all that long ago. Faith. Um, I mean, if you look at the what the Cook Political Report is saying, there are only 25 races that are considered toss-up races compared to like 226 races that are categorized as either solid, likely, or leaning Democrat and 184 seats that are classified as either solid, likely, or leaning Republican. So for the Republicans to actually be able to get that, they'd need to win all the toss-up states and actually flip a couple of seats that are either likely leaning or solid Democrat. And just that's a really tip, like really hard feat to go for. I mean, it, granted, it's politics. Nothing's impossible, but it's just very unlikely. OK, Noah. I think we can also kind of look at the 
the election that happened with like Barack Obama, like how normally after um, one uh, the president's party, usually they um, they lose control if they have the control of the House and then it switches to the other side. So, I mean, Donald Trump is still currently the president. So I think the reason they keep, might keep control is because they are currently the opposing party for them. I also feel like it has something um, it has something to do with population. A lot of the places that have a lot of representatives are heavily populated. And when you are, t- you tend to be more urbanized, you technically tend to be more democratic. I also feel like the only way, like for me, I, in my paper, I said the only way I think the Republicans could win the House is if because of the impeachment thing. Like I remember back in one of our classes, you talked about how this happened after Bill Clinton's impeachment, the Republicans lost control of the house. But I feel like it would have to just be a complete rejection of the democratic party then by some people that are Democrats because of the impeachment scandal. Okay. So it seems that Nancy Pelosi's job is more or less say, let's, let's talk about Mitch McConnell's job, but control of the Senate seems a lot more up for grabs. Although, it seems like there's a overall consensus that the Republican Party is almost certain to lose at least a few seats. In fact, President Trump uh, said reportedly that it will be very tough for his party to keep control. And even Mitch McConnell just gave his his party a 50-50 chance of staying in the majority. So I'm wondering if anyone to start with disagrees with this conventional wisdom. Do Republicans have any reasonable chance that holding or even expanding on their majority control in the Senate? What do you think? Is there a case to be made for that? Olivia? I mean, I think, like you said, it's politics. There's always the chance. And um, like I like I said, I get emails about all of this because I'm, I'm just very interested in it. And I'm constantly getting emails, whether it's to scare me into like wanting to donate more money or not, um, about how close some of these uh, these key seats are in the races. And like sometimes I'm getting, you know, notifications that like between Mitch McConnell and Amy McGrath that it's very close and like um you know, sometimes they're telling me that she's ahead and sometimes he's ahead. And that's the case with a lot of these seats that are, um, you know, and obviously in the McConnell case, he's expected to keep his seat and win. But a lot of these that are, um, you know, slated to be turned over to Democrats, the races are very close. So I think, you know, there is a chance of us seeing an upset and it, you know, not happening and then being able to keep the majority. I just think it's, um, it's unlikely, but I would not rule it out. Ellen. I agree with Olivia that it's unlikely that they'll keep the majority, but I also think that this idea that there's going to be this democratic wave in the Senate might be an overestimation. A lot of these races are in typically, well, now typically Republican regions. A lot of these are incumbent Republicans. I mean, one of the races that's supposedly a toss-up is South Carolina. South Carolina is a very conservative place. It's very Republican. Iowa. Despite being sort of a swing state, they currently have a Republican governor. Joni Ernst is the incumbent. Um, She was in at least one poll leading by one point. I think I certainly think the Democrats will gain seats, but I believe they might be overestimating their chances. Doc. Uh, This is kind of unscientific, but based on the number of requests that I get to donate to various Republicans 
which are basically worded, if you don't give us $25 now, we're going to lose. If you count those, they're going to lose. I mean, it's, uh, and if they're worded in an unbelievably nasty way, it's like, you know, maybe I gave them 20 bucks a couple months ago. All of a sudden, if I don't give them 50 bucks now, I'm an evil person. Uh, so I, I think they're running scared, to tell you the truth. In fact, Matter of fact, I, I, I hear that Mitch McConnell say that this is the toughest race he's ever run against an opponent. So let's move on to, well, the big one, obviously, which would be the presidential race. Now, I know that all of you predict that Joe Biden will win the popular vote. That seems like a pretty uncontroversial prediction for pretty much anyone. Let's assume for a minute that Joe Biden does, in fact, win the popular vote, again, a safe bet, but he loses the electoral vote, just like Al Gore did in 2000 and Hillary Clinton did in 2016. That would mean that in three of the last six presidential elections, half of them, there's easy math to do, the person who more Americans voted for was not elected president. So is this a problem? And if you think it is, what should we do about it? Olivia. This is my favorite topic, and I always have the controversial stance on it, and everybody disagreed with me last time, and I'm going to say it again. Um, It's 100% a problem, and I have so much beef with the Electoral College because I understand when it was founded um, that it was kind of a safeguard against, you know, people were less educated, and they had less um, access to information when the Electoral College was created. Um, People have so much access to information about the candidates now. And I think we can trust people to make uh, an informed decision um, on who they're voting for. And I don't think that that safeguard is necessarily uh, needed anymore. And also the Electoral College will also always benefit small states. And it really, you know, I know a lot of people think that's a good thing. Um, and a lot of times that depends on where you live and your partisan views, because small states almost always lean uh, Republican. So it's always going to benefit the Republican Party. Um, my view is that if you live in California, um, you are well, this is not my view. This is fact. If you live in California, the number of uh, electoral votes per citizen is like way like a hundred times lower that in some cases than uh, the number of electoral votes in a smaller state like Wyoming or Montana. Um, and that's not fair to me. And I think that if you know you are equally affected by federal policy if you live in California um, and you're up underrepresented in the Electoral College um, as someone is affected by policy in a smaller state. So to me, the 2.9 million people who voted for Hillary Clinton um, and we ended up being, you know, having minority role because fewer people voted for Trump and then he ended up being the president. That's not okay. Um, Those 2.9 million people's votes effectively didn't count. Um, And I think that if more people in the United States who are all equally affected by federal policy vote for a candidate, that candidate should be the president. Okay, Doc. Just based on what you just said, I mean, there's a map that comes up on Facebook occasionally 
that says if those if there is no electoral college, here's who selects the president, and it's California, Oregon, Washington, and New York. They select a president. Nobody else has a vote voice. I like to think we are a republic and democratic, but I don't want my life run by Californians and New Yorkers. They are not doing a very good job running their states. They're part of the United States. I don't want them running my life. I'll do anything to keep them out of the picture. Okay. Um, Noah. Um, so I kind of like, so personally, I feel like there needs to just be, if we keep the electoral college, there just needs to be some changes. Cause I feel like I, I honestly agree with Olivia and what she is saying that like the electoral college does sometimes favor small states over larger states. But I feel like the best way for us to currently change is because I don't think we'll be able to get rid of it. Like, after one election. I think what we will have to do is we'll kind of have to start changing to it being more not of a winner takes all kind of situation with the states with the electoral college votes. Like I think it's Nebraska, if I remember correctly, Nebraska and Maine where they split the votes. And so I feel like if this happens again in 2020, I think we might see a jump from a winner take all system with the electoral college votes to a changed proportional um, winners. So it's like, because it's like sometimes swing states, as we mentioned in the 2016 election, they Trump barely won by like 20,000 votes. I mean, like, he won all those electoral college votes, but then it's like Hillary still did a, a decent job in that election. So it's like, I think like, if this happens again, and if Trump wins the electoral college, but Biden wins the popular vote, I think we might see more states or we might see more states jump to that kind of um, system. Okay. Olivia. I 100% agree. And I'm so glad Noah said that because I actually meant to say it um, as well. Um, yeah, the winner, like if, you know, I, if it were up to me, I'd love to see the Electoral College abolished altogether. I hate it. But <laughs> if we have to keep it, because I know that, you know, people are not going to readily jump on that idea. Um, but if we have to keep the Electoral College, I agree that we at least should get rid of the winner take all system because um, especially like Noah said, when we saw in 2016, it came down to a couple of states by very few votes. Um, and so, you know, for Ohio, for example, just because I live there and I, I, I want to say we have like 18 electoral votes, something like that. Um, but, you know, if, if it, we see in this election that, for example, Biden wins 48% of the vote and Trump wins 50%. And then I don't know, maybe 2% goes to a, a third party. Um, I think that that those votes that Ohio gets should be split and that the electoral votes that go toward a candidate should uh, be a representation of the percentage of the state that voted for either candidate. I don't think one candidate should get all of the votes for that state when only half of the citizens voted for that candidate. Um, again, it's just, it just is, uh, it disenfranchises people from voting, especially in swing and swing states. The winner take all system. Why would you want to vote if you're a Republican in California? Um, what's your incentive to vote in that case? Unless we get rid of the winner take all system. Okay. Faith. Yeah, I definitely agree with all the points that Noah and Olivia brought up. I, I think especially looking at um, within the last couple of elections of how close some of the um, races in these states have been, it really does put an idea of how diverse a state is and the idea that ha almost half the people in the state voted for a specific candidate and the other half voted for the other candidate 
in that one group completely has their say in the um say in the system completely taken away by the winner take all system i think kind of maybe puts a sour taste in a lot of people's mouth so really just kind of giving that option to kind of break away and you get the candidate gets what the people in that state were looking for or at least a portion of what the people in that state were looking for kind of maybe brings about a better idea of fairness to some people no, a, a number of folks have mentioned that Maine and Nebraska method, and uh, I, I took a look back at the last oh, five presidential elections, and it turns out that actually if the election had been decided based on that method, it actually would have helped out Republicans in four of the last five presidential elections. In 2000, it would have given uh, Bush a more decisive victory over Gore. It would have given him a wider margin over Kerry in 2004 a narrow margin for Obama over McCain, though Obama still would have won. But in 2012, that system would have made Romney the winner over Obama. And then in 2016 is the only time it would have hurt a Republican, but still Donald Trump would have won, but by a smaller margin. Now, with the caveat being, of course, that a different system would mean that candidates would campaign almost certainly in a different way. But that model, at least the best we can tell, seems to not necessarily give a big advantage to to Democrats, certainly, it might actually be somewhat somewhat neutral. So let's move on to talk about uh, that uh, all-important electoral vote, more, more specifically with your predictions, because there are some clear differences of opinion on this. Uh, from my read of things, everyone who supports Joe Biden believes he'll win, while everyone who supports Donald Trump believes he will win, which is, I guess, kind of what you would expect. But there's one, well, at least semi-exception, I would say, um, and that's that's you, Olivia. You wrote that while you trust the polls, you have a gut feeling that Donald Trump will win and you have a hard time envisioning President Trump leaving office. And the reason I bring this up is not to put you on the spot, Olivia, but because this is not at all an uncommon position. In a national poll that was conducted not too long ago, around 56% of Americans said that they thought Donald Trump would win, even though in almost all polling, a majority of Americans, strong majorities in national polls, say that they support Joe Biden over Donald Trump. So, uh, Olivia, we'll let you be the stand-in for those millions of Americans, at least in this minute. Uh, wh why do you think that? Um, so, like I wrote in my paper Part of it is I think that I am just preparing myself for the worst because for me personally, worst case scenario is four more years of Trump. And um, I think that like my brain is protecting myself from getting my hopes up and then being heartbroken. But um, as far as like actual evidence, I am worried about, um, like a lot of the articles said, the fact that early because and a lot of it is because of the rhetoric that um, Trump and re the Republican Party has pushed around. You know, he has a campaign ad right now saying put on a mask and, and go. I don't even know if he said put on a mask. I doubt it. But he said go to the polls and vote in person. And he just keeps saying that. And that's his campaign ad. Um, and I think that that rhetoric is pushing, you know, is kind of creating a partisan divide between who's going to be voting in person on November 3rd and who's been casting mail ballots and going to vote early. Um, and I think a lot of votes that we have so far from early voting and absentee voting are going to be more democratic and we're going to see a major Republican Trump supporting wave on November 3rd. And I know that polls have accounted for that. Um, but what worries me a lot is that with Trump, I want to say that the the number of votes that uh, were the tipping factor 
um, that tipped the scales in his favor in 2016, as far as um, him getting the electoral vote for certain states, was like 80,000 votes. And um, it's predicted that at least 100,000 votes will uh, be spoiled or rejected that were mailed in, and those are uh, most likely to be Democratic votes. So I just think that there are a lot of factors this year, and also the fact that Trump has refused to agree to a peaceful transition of power, and we now have a six to three majority of uh, of right winged uh, Supreme Court justices who, um, if, you know, there's a dispute over the results, it gets taken to the Supreme Court. I worry about, you know, whether they will rule in a nonpartisan way or if they will rule in Trump's favor. I just think there are so many factors this year and this is not a standard election and it's hard to compare this election to any other because they're just we're in the middle of a pandemic and it's, we have a, an, a president who acts in a very unprecedented fashion. Um, I just I don't know. I think I'm just preparing myself for the worst and trying to account for all the factors so that I don't get my hopes up to be sorely disappointed. OK. Doc. I. I like Trump because he is neither a Democrat or a Republican. He is Trump, and he is unpredictable and unprecedented, uh, as we just heard. And I like that in a leader. Um, I just, the, one of the things that bothers me in the question. You said, um, you ask about uh, a prediction of if Biden wins the popular vote and Trump wins the election, the Electoral College, what's going to happen? And when we were talking to the young man before, and I was talking about splinter groups, I think there's going to be real trouble. I mean, violent trouble. I mean, like, what did the article I read, they call it fourth generation war. It's going to be really tribal. That's what I worry about. Um, so, but I, uh, I kind of think Trump's going to win. I, sit here and think that I have no signs in my yard, but I, I do think he's going to eke it out again. Alan. Yeah. I think a lot of us are worried about violence post-election day, but to um, speak to this concern on for some on the left that the, that Trump seems to be like this gut feeling that he'll win the election anyway. I think, to put that into numbers form as to why they may feel that way, um, only 46% of Biden's supporters strongly support his candidacy, whereas 66% of Trump's supporters strongly support his candidacy. And that's very similar to the Trump-Clinton divide in um, 2016 when it came to enthusiasm, except less people were enthusiastic about both candidates. I remember um, at a Biden town hall when one of the um, questionnaires asked Biden, I have my Biden sign in a sea of Trump signs. It just seems that on the ground, what a lot of people see, regardless of whether or not it reflects the real numbers, is this idea that there is this more enthusiastic Trump base than there is an enthusiastic Biden base. And that may be where this like gut feeling comes from. OK, you know, I, in reading over your your answers to this and thinking about this just more generally for my own interest, I put together an electoral college map, assuming that every single state poll average 
was biased toward Biden by 5%. So I added 5% for Trump in every single state polling average. And But even then, I still end up with Biden winning 296 electoral votes to 242 for Trump, even after adjusting that much. And that, of course, would be pretty historically bad for polls. So I guess that's my question, especially to those of you who I guess there are three of you, at least, who think that Donald Trump will win. Do you think that the polls are going to be that far off? Olivia, I hope that they're not like I I don't know. For me, I'm struggling because like even writing my paper, there are so many more reasons to believe that they're going to be accurate. And they were accurate. Um, Like you said, they were accurate in 2016. um, And the normal uh, error margin, at least this close to the election, is about two, two percentage points. So with you adjusting that much, I mean, they should be accurate in predicting Biden. And like, the logical part of me wants to believe that I just think for, you know, myself and for a lot of people who like really desperately want Biden to win. Um, I, I agree with what Alan said that like it's you know the Biden base is less enthusiastic than the Trump base, and we're you know there was just a huge rally that I had got stuck in on my way to work of uh, of Trump supporters um, lining the bridges with flags and having flags flying off their trucks on um, on two seventy five, um, and I we don't see that with Biden. The Biden base is less enthusiastic, so maybe it's just like this fear that um, we're seeing so much diehard Trump support, especially right now, um, that we don't really want to. I don't know. It just I. All of the all of the evidence points to that Biden should win, but there's just I don't know. There's something in my gut saying that um, that whether it's legitimate or not, um, that we might be stuck with Trump for four years. Okay, Doc. I mentioned in my paper that the the polling or the yeah the the polling people, and I I looked at this website this five thirty eight. And I looked at the their web page, uh, and I went down it, and all of a sudden I'm seeing things that they do, like soccer club predictions and global soccer club predictions, and who's the best NBA pick. And I'm thinking these people are doing predictions of a presidential race. It sounds more like a bookie outfit. Uh, it sounds like they're handicapping things for Las Vegas rather than. So, how much faith do I put into this outfit that that's predicting, you know, sporting events? Uh, being a person that doesn't really like sports, um, so I'm not sure, you know, what these guys are up to. There's a pollster. His name's. Frank uh, Luntz, he leans a little bit to the right, and I like what he said. He wrote an article, and he said, if Trump defies the polls, the whole polling organizations are just going to go out of business. They said they'll they'll just be uh, nonsense. So... You know, I really, I really wonder about the veracity of these things. Okay. Olivia. I do want to add that what really scares me about the polls um, 
this year is, is like I said, this is a different election as far as uh, how much early voter turnout we've seen. And um, I'd like to think that that's going to benefit the Democratic Party and that's going to benefit Biden. But also with mail-in voting, um, what's worrying me is that we have so much more mail-in voting that we have had in the past. And uh, I, I can't, I think it's today that Amy Coney Barrett is supposed to they're supposed to see some cases on um, whether or not certain states will uh, be allowed to vote or uh, count ballots that arrive after Election Day. Um, and if ballots are not counted past Election Day, who knows how many ballots that. Um, and I also just saw in the news yesterday that really we have about 48 hours in most states to cast those ballots before they probably are going to arrive late. Um, and there are certain people casting ballots today that depending on how overwhelmed the post office is that they might arrive late. And so if it's determined that those states um, are not to count ballots that arrive late, I don't know how much Democratic votes are being overcompensated for that might end up being rejected. Um, and I think that's another concern that I have is that what if, you know, what if the polls are accurate um, in, in terms of how people in certain states vote, but what if a large portion of those votes and, you know, just enough to tip the scales? Because like I said, in 2016, it wasn't all that much that it took to tip the scales. I just, I guess I'm just, I'm worried about how, you know, the, if the polls are able to handle this new situation and, and taking into account all of the factors in this new situation with this president who, like I said, his administration has um, been behaved in ways that we have not seen before and pushed narratives that we haven't seen before and challenged systems that have, you know, never given us a reason to challenge them. I just, I don't know. This election's different than other years. And okay. I think that's where my gut feeling's coming from. So let's say that that the unlikely but certainly not impossible happens. And, you know, in 2016, Donald Trump had somewhere around the 15 percent chance of winning, according to the polls. And and he won. And now he has somewhere around a 15 percent or so chance of winning, according to the polls. And let's say he wins again. What does that mean? This is something Doc brought up. What does that mean for the future of polling? Does do two unlikely but certainly potentially possible events in a row mean that people just ignore polling? Does that destroy the public's faith in election polls? What do you think? Doc? One of the things I learned in psychology classes is as soon as you design an experiment and put that out there, you have changed the whole climate of what you're trying to experiment on. As soon as you touch it, it's different. There's some weird, you know, I, uh, how, do you want, how do you want me to answer? I'll answer any way you want me to. Uh, what do you want me to think? Uh, I'll think however you want me to. So you have, I mean, designing a questionnaire, designing a poll, designing the questions is really difficult. I mean, I, I'm trying to think of the, uh, the name of the class I took, but I mean, th it is not an easy thing to design that kind of experiment. Okay. Faith. Um, yeah, I think the class Doc is probably referring to is public opinion. Um, I also took 
a public opinion class where we had to um, make our own survey. And it really just kind of showed me the difficulty that um, a lot of people have in getting, making a survey in terms of like making sure you have or the right amount of respondents, a good variety of respondents, the question ordering, what wording are you using? So I think that, especially as Olivia said, paired with the just crazy year that 2020 has been, should maybe help if the polls are wrong, soften some of that blow. But I think a big thing that one of the articles I kind of talk, um, read talked about is that something that people kind of don't consider with um, polling is that they kind of think that because of technologically advanced societies that these polling methods are supposed to be flawless, but the margin of error is actually built into the system itself. The system isn't designed to be completely perfect. So I do think that if the polls are as wrong as they were and weren't in 2016, it could pose a problem. But I also think there are so many factors, especially considering how 2020 is played out, that should maybe help people not lose as much faith, but also kind of understand maybe why the polls were again thrown off. Okay. Well, that's where we will leave things for today. But I want to mention to to folks that even though voting will be over before our next show, we still have two more episodes in this series. Our next episode will air on Thursday, November 5th, when we'll talk about, well, whatever it is we know about how the elections turned out at that point and what, if anything, we can conclude from what we'll know. That will be followed by two more post-election episodes, at which point we should we'll certainly know a lot more about election results. And we'll also be discussing what these results might mean for the direction of the United States over the next few years. And if you have a question or comment, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email, mail at politicsguys.com or post a comment in the episode link we'll put up on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we will do our best to answer your question or respond to your comment in an upcoming episode. And if in addition to this series on the 2020 elections and our regular weekend show, you would like a third full-length Politics Guys episode every week. You can get that by becoming a Patreon supporter. Supporters also get ad-free versions of everything, as well as other good stuff to get the details. And to become a supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you want all that stuff that you can't afford to become a supporter right now, just send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you all set up. We'd also appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show, leave ratings and reviews, and especially if you could share your favorite episodes on social media. The executive producers of Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Will Morano, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkerson, and Nathan Sosnowski. We'll be back with our weekly news roundup and analysis show on Saturday and the next segment in this Election 2020 series on Thursday, November 5th. We hope you'll join us.